Welcome back to the podcast, Storytelling and Safety. I'm your host, Tim Page Potter. And today, we're going to get back at it. We've been off for a little bit, kind of focusing on other things, but let me give you a quote. There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. Maya Angelou. You're going to be in a treat, and for a treat today, we've got a special guest coming all the way from the East Coast. I'm going to introduce him in the actual recording, but sit back and relax and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast on storytelling and safety. We've taken some time off to catch up and reflect on what's going on around the world and contribute our efforts in other areas. But now that we're back, I wanted to come out of the shoe with a bang. We're excited to bring our next guest all the way from the East Coast, somewhere near Maryland. Our next guest is a hardworking, traveling safety professional who you would probably argue doesn't get a chance to travel much since COVID-19, uh, but also worked for a major rail company out of Baltimore, Maryland, is the current president of the National Capital Chapter in the D.C. area, and is in the middle of earning his graduate degree from the University of Alabama, Birmingham. He currently has a BA from the University of Maryland, and a lot of people don't know this, but he attended the United States Naval Academy, and he was on the varsity crew rowing team. Wyatt Bradbury comes to us because of his ability to connect generations in this crazy world of ours. I've known Wyatt for the last few years. I've known him to be a go-getter, uh, a bridge builder, which is extremely important in this podcast, and an excellent storyteller. Please welcome Wyatt Bradbury to the podcast. Wyatt, how you doing, my friend? Hey, Tim. Thank you. Honored to be here. Really excited to be here and just trying to help folks learn uh, how to communicate better and really just talk about why we can't talk to one another. Yeah, so I hope we can have a good conversation here today. Yeah, the, the, the original thought about COVID-19 when they said social distancing, it actually, I think it kind of backfired. I think we're looking more towards physical distancing, but social connection. Would you agree? Yeah, you know, I actually had a professional uh, get upset with me when I used the term one time. They said, well, we're not socially distancing. I'm more socially connected than I've ever been in my life. It, we're physically distancing. And we had a fun discussion about that and some of the terminology that was used. And I think that kind of demonstrates the power of words um, totally and totally. how word choice really is extremely important even in this day and age. Yep, I agree. And there's a ton of turns that are going on right now with uh, a lot of what's going on in the world from pro uh, protesters and some of the what they deliver might, might, might be misconstrued, but we won't talk about politics today. We would rather talk about communications, mentoring, and helping out people, um, specifically young professionals, and maybe bridging a gap generationally between some of the things that you've learned, some of the things that I've learned. But I want to say thank you for being here. Um, if you're okay, let's just get started with the questions. Question number one, what are some of the biggest communication lessons you have learned throughout your emergence as a young professional? Well, I think the biggest thing is that your communication shifts the first time you enter the workforce. It goes from being, you know, dominated by your peer group to all of a sudden you're, you're trying to communicate with other generations and it's dominated by folks who, who are of a myriad of generations. Uh, you know, when I, when I stepped across the threshold of my first company, you know, the ground didn't shake, but it probably should have because that was the first time I was going to have to communicate, learn to communicate in ways, in new ways and in new methods. You know, when you're in college, it's really easy. Everyone's using email, everyone's texting, everyone's on a cell phone. You know, even the professors and some folks from other generations that are there are still trying to reach you 
in the means and methods that you have. And you know what I found in my first company is that I had systematically been trained to communicate in a certain way and that just wasn't effective at that employer. In fact, my communication was horrendous. Yeah, I was a liberal arts major. I could write really well, but that doesn't really get you that far when people aren't in the field aren't reading what you're writing. They're not interested in your emails. They need that relationship. They need that personal touch. And you've got to figure out, you have 150 different crews in, in some cases, you got to figure out how do you interact with 150 different people. Some of them might need a phone call. Some of them might need a personal touch. Some of them might be really savvy and they might be good with email. Um, but I, I really fell flat on my face when I first started in the workforce. And by and large, it wasn't my knowledge. It wasn't my you know, ability to be a safety professional. It was my ability to communicate. I knew the regulations. I knew how to do my job. But I really struggled with that kind of personal touch and, and trying to figure out how to get my message across and it's not just so that it's received, it's that it's so that it's decoded and understood by those you're trying to get it across to. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter if people are just hearing your message if they can't understand it. That's good. Uh, you said a few things that I want to not backtrack, but actually come back and visit. Uh, but the thing is, is that if you come out of college and expecting to communicate in the same way, that might set you up for failure. But you also said that you had to learn a few things. So were you the one making most of the adjustments? Or were the people around you making most of the adjustments? Well, the most important thing was me learning how to adjust. Because as you're coming into an organization, you know, the organization is not going to mold to you. In some ways, you're going to have to mold to it. And so I was having to learn it. And, you know, one of the, one of, looking back, one of the biggest frustrations was that no one explained to me or, or helped me understand the base level communication failures. We knew that there were issues. We knew that the message wasn't getting across, but we couldn't identify that it was as simple as the means and methods or, or how we were approaching the communication. We kept focusing on the message. And, you know, again, the message isn't, is, is rarely the issue. It's, it's how you're trying to communicate it. Um, so I really had to take a step back and evaluate and, and try to, you know, and it took years. It wasn't the first company I worked for. It wasn't the second company I worked for, but over a period and trying to see a, starting to see a pattern and starting to evaluate, you know, the, the communication struggles I was having, it became very clear, hey, I might need to understand the culture, how the culture communicates, how the people communicate. Because again, safety is all about people. If you're coming out and you're trying to make it about rules and regulations and make it about policies, especially as an emergent professional, you're going to fall flat on your face. You're not going to get very far. It's, there's a time and a place for that. But ultimately, safety is about people. And we have to be able to communicate our message and oftentimes a very technical message in a personal way. Yeah, that's good. I like what you said. I can backtrack to everything that you just said because I've experienced quite a few of those things myself. But you becoming resilient and adjusting is something that's not taught in university. It's not taught in um, certain classrooms that you attend. You might learn along the way, um, but I'm curious along the way, have you ever had, and you maybe share a story with us, a situation where communication didn't work out the way you thought it would or maybe the way the other person should have perceived it? Yeah, so there was one, po one point, um, and this kind of goes back to that idea of method, right? So there was one situation I had where um, I had to receive some news, and I knew the news was coming. I didn't know if it was going to be good news or bad news, um, but I knew the news was coming, and someone reached out to me, the individual who I was expecting it from reached out to me, and they reached out by email, and immediately they said, hey, can we schedule a time to talk? And 
you know, for me, as soon as I received that, I had the feeling I was, it was going to be bad news. And I had the feeling that, you know, Hey, this is probably not going to be the most positive conversation. And, you know, it's not the end of the world, but it was somewhat disappointing. And so now the entire day, I'm, I'm just waiting for that conversation so that I can, you know, relive this whole experience and, and have to do it live over the phone with someone. And, you know, by the end of that phone call, you know, I was more, I was more disappointed and more focused on, you know, kind of the, the raw emotion than I was even on the message. And I think on the flip side, you know, that individual wanted to deliver this in a very personal way. And so they wanted to make sure that their message was getting across and they wanted it to have a personal touch. But I think just this kind of just demonstrates the importance of understanding the different preferred communication uh, methods and communication styles of those that you're working with. You know, in some cases, if you reach out through a certain method, that individual might, might completely miss the message because they're so focused on an emotion or, or some other uh, consequence or some other condition that's just related to the, the method, not even what you're trying to say. Oh, that's um, and so I think it's important that you choose that carefully. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad. I'm glad you said it because I was getting ready to ask if somebody asks you at nine o'clock and let's say it's your boss at nine o'clock in the morning saying, Hey, I want to schedule some time with you. I need to talk to you this afternoon at three o'clock. Okay, uh, let's talk. But then all of a sudden in your mind from nine to three, you got, you got six hours and, I, and it's happened to a lot of people because it's happened to me to sit there and think about what's going to happen at three o'clock. And then all of a sudden, hey, I just wanted to give you, uh, I wanted to give you a challenge, Corinne, because I thought your work was astounding today. I thought you were doing great work, and I just wanted to thank you. But then you built yourself up for, well, almost failure, and I thought uh, your message was loud and clear there. That could be bad communication. And if you spend your time, 30 minutes worth, 60 minutes worth, six hours worth, it could eventually be something that you've wasted a lot of effort on. So thank you for that. How about the flip side? Do you have something that might be considered a story that might be really good in communication. Yeah, you know, I think there was one case where um, it was an employee who was used to safety beating them down and used to having the safety cop. And they were, they were used to it just being write-ups or, or safety just being about the rules and the regulations. And, you know, I had the opportunity to just go out there and talk to them. And it wasn't even necessarily anything extremely consequential it was just the fact that I was showing that I cared and I was trying to, to make safety human. And they, that really resonated with them. And all of a sudden, as soon as they, they started to trust me and they started to open up and they started to share more. And through that conversation, I learned more about the issues that they were facing and more about how work actually gets done than I ever possibly could have by just observing it. And so I think that's really important that, you know, communication is going to open our doors as safety professionals to, to understanding. And especially as, as emerging safety professionals, the mo we know safety or, or, or a lot of safety as we're coming out of school. We don't understand how work gets done. We don't understand context. We don't understand our organizations. And if you can just go in and start to build those relationships and, and begin to talk to people, you're going you're gonna to gain that. And that knowledge is worth more in many cases than knowing regulations or, or knowing an ANSI standard or knowing some other little tidbit of information. Oh, so safety is personal. You said make a human. That means you need the personal interaction. And that's extremely important. I'm glad you said it. Okay, good. That's good line, good lines of communication. And like you said before, you didn't really go to the university of good 
soft skills. You went to the university to get some kind of liberal arts education or even an occupational health and safety degree. Um, working on a graduate degree, both of us together. Um, you're going to UAB, I'm going to Central Washington. Trying to do what we can do, but it, it, like I said, there's not a lot of classes that are out there on how to de develop a relationship or how to develop better communication. It's mostly how to develop a written program or how to manage integration or how to write a contractor safety for, I get it, I totally get it. It actually leads us down the path of grabbing somebody that's been in the safety business for a while and maybe mentoring how we can get those soft skills. So you've got some experience in this because you were at one point a mentee and I think you're already making a transition to becoming a mentor for some of the emerging professionals that you work with, more specifically with the American Society of Safety Professionals. So in your, in your opinion, how can we make mentoring more effective? Well, I think the first thing to do is to make it less structured. I think mentoring in a lot of cases has become a, a very structured, uh, very hierarchical, very vertical uh, kind of box we have to check. Or, or in some cases, I've even seen checklists where, hey, I'm your mentor. I've got to mentor you on these things, and we're going to just go do a checkoff. And to me, that's not mentoring. In some ways, that's like training right? Where I'm trying to help you achieve some objective or teach you some objective. Mentoring is organic. Mentoring is a relationship. In many ways, it's more of a collaboration. And I think, you know, it's very important that, you know, we focus on just building the relationships and we understand that there's not necessarily, in some cases there is, but in a lot of cases, there's not necessarily a defined objective that we go in trying to achieve. In some cases, we might not necessarily achieve anything. There might not be any physical widget that we come out with or, or any, uh, you know, any article that gets published. Some cases there are, but we've got to go in understanding that our ability to grow, our, our ability to communicate, to develop, to interact with others, that, that's what's going to make mentoring more effective. You know, Tim, you and I having conversations like this, this is mentoring in some cases and, and we're helping, you know, we're, we're pushing one another to think differently about the world around us and to think differently about our organizations and to think differently about how we perceive things. And I think, you know, that is all mentoring and that's what's missing. That's how we're going to make it effective. And that's good. Well, it comes with communication too. So from the first point for talking about communication to better mentorship, and I feel like relationships sometimes fail because one person in the relationship ends up bringing a checklist into that relationship. Uh, pretty, pretty brown eyes. Um, let me give you a couple of things here. Uh, doesn't smoke. Um, there's all kinds of things that you can give a, a checklist to, and this person comes into the relationship with this checklist, but quite frankly, if you want the relationship to work or the mentorship to work, I agree with you. Get rid of the checklists. Let's start talking about what we can do to build a better relationship because if we're working on relationships between me and you, mentor, mentee, mentee, mentor, and the mentor can learn. I've learned a few things from some of the people that I provided mentorship to, and it didn't necessarily come with a checklist, and I bet you you've known some mentors that have actually given checklists. So for you to say that and that experience, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so I think mentoring can be more effective, and I agree with you with better relationship building. So from a success perspective, when it comes to emerging professionals or emerging generations in our profession, what does that success look like? Yeah, well, and I think, I think Tim, even in the question, it's, 
it's not necessarily directed at one generation. Cause I think there's, there's things that we're going to, we all have to do um, to make it more effective and to, and to, to be better at, at, at that relationship and better at mentoring um, for the emerging uh, professionals specifically. I think it really comes down to being open and willing to work in any capacity. Um, I think if you're willing to learn, if you're willing to grow, um, if again, it's about having your perceptions challenged. If you're going into mentoring with, with blinders on, or if you're going in and being very closed minded, it's going to be a lot harder for that growth to occur. Um, I think it comes down to uh, listening and I don't mean listening so that you can respond. And when you're listening, you're, you're trying to generate, Hey, this is what I'm going to say because I need to prove something. I think it comes down to listening just for understanding and, and, and making sure the other person feels that they're heard. And, you know, if you have a question, respectfully questioning, you know, you don't want to just come across as, challenging everything because again you're, you're trying to just open up and broaden your view of things um you know i think it also comes down to how are you building perpetual leadership and perpetual collaborations as you're going out and mentoring you know it's not just hey tim mentors me and it stops with me you know i've got to go out and i think you know the term now is kind of how are you passing it along but you know how are you continuing that growth chain um you know, but I think on the flip side, there's, there's some things that more experienced generations need to, need to do in order to see success. I think there needs to be a willingness to listen and try. You know, James Beretti is someone that we've talked to quite a bit in ASSP, and he's someone who will, will raise their hand and stand up and say, hey, I've learned more from those that I've mentored that are, that are emerging professionals than I could have ever passed down because he's got a willingness to listen and try. He's got um, he, he wants to give relevant and insightful guidance and support. And again, it's not about him. He's not trying to say, Hey, I'm on a pedestal, you know, look at me, look at all I've done. It's, Hey, this is what I honestly believe. This is what I've experienced. This is what I see. Um, it's about providing opportunities for growth and development. One of my mentors, Jerry Rivera has done this. You know, the reason I am who I am is in large part because he gave, he went out and, and kind of blazed the path. And I didn't know it at the time, but he blazed paths for me so that I could have those opportunities for growth and development. And I think it's how do you empower emerging professionals to grow? And this is why I love ASSP overall. Um, you know, and I'm not necessarily trying to, to give them a shout out or anything, but you know, I think the leaders in that organization do a really good job of empowering growth and recognizing that, hey, it's, you know, my legacy doesn't have to be set in stone. My legacy can be the fact that you know, an organization survives, an organization sustains, and the fact that we have really good leaders coming on behind us. Oh, okay, um, there's a bunch of golden nuggets here that I need to recapture here. Um, listening to understand is extremely important. So that you know, I know that there are leaders out there that are always listening to it, but are, they've already prepared what they want to say, but they really don't listen to what you're saying. And to bring up a good friend, um, you said James Beretti. <laughs> I literally had a virtual happy hour with him last night. We were just chit-chatting back and forth about some of the things that we've done. Um, James is about ready to – he's a regional vice president for Region 1, but he's got two more weeks left in the fiscal year. So American Society of Safety Professionals is getting ready to transition in July. And I just, I just hope somebody like James stays involved because he's always listening, which comes back to the communication that you talked about. So good mentorship mostly about communication. 
good mentorship, somebody like Jerry Rivera. Um, don't ever go dancing with Jerry in the middle of the night at 2009 San Antonio. That guy, <laughs> <coughs> crap, crazy. Um, Jerry will probably remember those nights when we went bar hopping. It was ASSP 2009. Anyway, I learned a lot from Jerry, and I think he was a great mentor for you. But for these two guys, these two guys set the example. Now, are there professionals out there that don't? I mean, I don't want to give anybody's name. Let's talk about I don't want to stereotype, and I don't want to shame. But there are professionals out there that do the checklists, that do the they do the uh, go go do what I say and not what I do. They they do those kinds of things and that kind of leadership. I don't know. I think you said it right. These two, James and Jerry, are great examples of what leadership looked like. Maybe a picture in the dictionary is what you find is with these two. Um, but then again, you'll find some photographs out there, folks, of what leadership should have looked like. And I I, I won't talk about what shouldn't be done because I'd rather keep this positive. I'd rather talk about what should be done. So you're, you're mentioning about good, good examples of mentoring. Um, are there any pitfalls, speaking of maybe the bad stuff, is there any, are there any pitfalls that people should try to avoid when they're mentoring or if there's a mentee that's trying to learn? What pitfalls should they try to avoid? Yeah, so I think there's a couple. I think one is making sure that you have some sort of an individual mission, right? You've got to know who, who you are in some sense and where you're trying to go and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, you need some direction. I'm not saying you need to have an end goal in mind, but you got to at least have some overlap in what you believe, right? I've used the example before. If someone's a philanthropist and someone, all they care about is money, there's not really a lot of overlap there. And there's not going to be a great relationship that comes from that. There's going to probably going to be more strife and conflict than there is positive growth. Um, I think it's important to understand why you're seeking mentorship. You know, I've got a, a really good friend who he and I, we have, we each have a weakness that's opposite. And so that gives us the opportunity to support one another because it just so happens our, our strengths are also the opposite in some cases. And so there's an opportunity for me to help with his weakness and him to help with my weakness. And, you know, we collaborate pretty regularly on that. So I think it's important to understand what, what are you seeking and what are, you, what are the needs that you have? Where are your strengths? Where are your weaknesses? Do you need information? Do you need to practice on your soft skills? Do you need advice? You know, it could be some combination of all of them. Um, I think it's really important. Also, Dan Hopwood mentions that, you know, it's not, it's a, it's a relationship and a relationship has, has peaks and it has valleys and it's going to flow. And sometimes, um, you know, you're, you're going to be giving more and sometimes you're going to be receiving more and sometimes life just gets in the way. I mean, coronavirus has been, you know, one of those examples where life, it just, it's something, it's a part of our life, part of our environment, and it's gotten in the way of a lot of things. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a good or a bad. In some cases, it can just be reality. Um, I also think it's important to understand, and this kind of goes back to our conversation before, what are you going to do to maintain strong communication during your mentoring? You know, I have a couple mentors out on the West Coast where we're not big texters and we're not really big email people. For us, we value that face-to-face -face connection. We, we, we set aside time when we're in, in the same location. We, we block out time so that we can collaborate with one another and talk to one another. I have other, you know, mentors where we can text all the time. And that's how we, how we maintain that relationship. Some folks, it's, it's an email. And it's just touching base on email. So I think it's really important that you understand the communication style that you have, that that other individual has. What are your preferences? And 
again, it's not, again, we're not trying to set out a checklist or a specified plan, but I think it's important to have, you know, an idea of what you're going to do to maintain that strong communication. All right. Uh, just to review, um, it's okay to set up a, it's okay to set up the rules up front. If you like to text, it's okay. I'll text you. If you like to email, I'm going to try to work on that. I'm not an email fan. Um, I'm not saying me, I'm just you know, rhetorically saying, um, <laughs> but you brought up another, uh, you brought up another name and we're going to give them shout outs on all social media platforms when we finish this podcast. But uh, Dan Hopwood, who um, was the region one vice president before James Boretti, uh, but Dan working um, for a major insurance company, knows his stuff. He's a leadership guy. Um, and he's right. Communication is relationships. Generationally, um, somebody, like you said, would like to text. They would like to maybe email. Um, and if you go all the way to baby boomers, um, they might send smoke signals. I joke. <laughs> I, I'm kidding. Um, my dad would choke me. If he, he wouldn't choke me. He would, uh, he would put me in timeout. Um, nevertheless, there, you, you have to find a way. So even going back to the very, very beginning of this podcast, you talked about adapting um, and then moving into a couple of workplaces where you were familiar and comfortable with certain things. But in order for people to change, they've got to break that cycle of comfort. And let me give you something that's real world right now. March the 12th was the last time I shook somebody's hand. And when I shook their hand, I was like, I don't know, but I'm going to do it anyways. And I, I said, let, let me know, just tell you right now, you're going to be the last person's hand I shake. But it was all starting to unfold. Um, and the isolations and the, and the physical social distancing started to occur. Right now, everybody wants to go back to the old way of things because it's comfortable. It's what they know. It's what they're used to. I am going to probably go out on the limb, and I think you would agree, but I'm not sure things are going to go back to that so soon. As a matter of fact, it might even be longer than a year before we can get back to our old normal. But that means now that people are carrying sanitizer. They're actually wearing masks. They're staying six feet away from people. And they did that in a matter of two months where typical culture change occurs in three to four years. And for you to work at two or three different jobs and try to adapt in order for you to live in that relationship in that environment you got to change for yourself and that is extremely important so mentors that are out there that provide that type of informational feedback it's important but you wouldn't be able to do it with a checklist it is only in the relationship and right now it's hard it's hard for me to tell everybody that you're not going back to the way it was you have to get out of that comfort zone and a lot of people know that I work for SafeStar. We talk about complacency. Complacency is knowing what's comfortable and what feels good so that way you're in a groove. But when it feels good and when you're comfortable and you're in a groove is when you're most likely going to make a mistake. So I think it's kind of good, unfortunate, but good that our paths have been disrupted to change for maybe a new normal. I know that sounds cliche because that's what we've all been talking about, but this is a much larger situation. And I don't think we're going to go back to the normal that we know. And I think you didn't go back to the normal that you knew, which was college communication. People that you're talking about, Jerry Rivera, James Boretti, Dan Hopwood, they have adapted to what they've learned. And now they share that. That comes through mentorship. But all great mentorship comes with communication. So we could probably have another podcast about generations. So my last question for you is, when you think about all the things we've discussed already, what are your thoughts on entitlement 
I mean, I know that's a label that's often given to emerging professionals, but what are your thoughts about entitlement? Yeah, so I've got an opinion on this. Um, I think entitlement is a stereotype that's applied, and I think a lot of times it's, it's misapplied. Um, what you have right now are generations that are hyper, hyper aware and hypersensitive to their strengths and weaknesses. When we're in elementary school, junior high, high school, college, the number of assessments we take on personality, the number of assessments that we take on strengths and weaknesses, I mean, we, we're, we know we get a printout every year of what colleges and what degrees and what careers we should be pursuing. So when I have a professional who is being asked to say, hey, we need you to be a secretary or a note taker, or even in some cases, hey, we need you to be the field guy. And they're saying, hey, I don't think that's a fit. That's where I see them being labeled as, oh, well, you're entitled. You think you're better than that. And I don't think that's the case. To me, entitlement is thinking that you're too good for something or you're better than something. I think in a lot of cases, at least in my experience, what I see is people know what they're really good at and they know what they're really bad at. And they might not be articulating it well, but they're probably really saying more so, hey, this isn't a fit for me. This isn't a match. I, I know I, I've been told what I'm good at, who I am, what I'm bad at. And hey, that aligns probably more to the negative than the positive. And you know, that's my, that's my opinion on entitlement. I think really what we have is a generation who knows their strengths and weaknesses and doesn't want to just be put through the same process because that's the way it's always been done and doesn't want to just be put through the same mold because, hey, that's the mold that we have. You know, I think we've systematically created an, an, you know, an environment and a culture where people know who they are. And if it's not a match, hey, it's not a match. And they're, you know, that's where you see disengagement. That's where you see, you know, this other term that's applied job hopping. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of one of the many dominoes in the chain. But I, I really think that, you know, before you just label entitlement, you need to dig into that a little bit um, because there's probably more there than meets the eye. I totally agree. And I appreciate the review you gave on my book um, last year after you read it. And when I was putting together the chapter on entitlement Titus, I was talking about how people play the victim and all they do is use the, the victimization as a problem. And what you just said was extraordinary because I don't think students, young professionals, emerging professionals, they're not playing the entitlement card. I just think they're trying to find their way. And what's important to note is that if they're trying to find their way, they are, I think, the students that I've met who are very resilient. They're sort of like you when it comes to getting into the workforce. They know that they're probably going to have to change, but what is it that they've got to change? It was very specific for you in the beginning of changing your communication style so that way you can adapt to what everybody else is doing around you. But I, I don't think that they would go, I'm entitled. I just got out of university, so you need to communicate the way I do. No, I don't think they're going to do that. Um, as a matter of fact, they might, they might play a little bit of victimization, but I don't think they'll be vilified in that victimization, nor will the disease of entitlementitis come out. What that means simply is that if, if you feel like you've got something that's owed to you, always go back and ask, did you earn it? Otherwise, if you think it should be handed to you, that's entitlementitis. Um, anyway, generationally, you've got a great presentation. 
Um, for those of us that got a chance to see Wyatt, you probably have seen his generational XYZ presentation. It's really, really good. Um, if you haven't got a chance to see him, um, you should. Uh, Wyatt, are you speaking in a couple weeks at the virtual PDC? I'm not, actually. You're not? Okay. My presentation didn't make the cut. But you've done it before there, haven't you? No, not at the actual PDC. Okay. Um, I know they, took, they went from 240 down to 60. So I know it's kind of probably hard to get selected if you, if you made the original cut. But he does this, he did it yesterday. He's, he's done it live. I've, I've been in a couple of his um, rooms when he's done the presentation. It's outstanding. Gives you an idea of what some of the different generations that are out there. Um, before we let our listeners go, what, can you just let everybody know what levels of generations that you talk about in this presentation? Well, I kind of, I talk about everyone in, in some sense. Uh, we start with the matures, then we go to the baby boomers, Generation X, Millennials, Generation Z, and now Generation A. Um, but ultimately, you know, these ideas of communication um, kind of get lumped into two groups. Um, and I think they transcend, you know, unique titles. And I think these ideas of collaboration and mentoring really, I mean, anyone from within or without, you know, intra or intergenerational uh, mentoring can occur. Um, so I think a lot of it applies across the board. I agree. And every single generation has different opinions, different point of views. What we can't fall into a trap with is if we do silo our generations, is that we advocate for the generations, but we don't bash against. In other words, we don't say nothing negative about the other generation. And most times, it's happened with me, and my, my kids will teach me, don't generalize a millennial. Um, and that's just something that they would say. And I, I've learned a lot from that. So I, I, you millennials, I can't believe this. That's something that you would hear from some of the professionals that are out there. But quite frankly, um, we, we don't bash others, but we try to advocate for. So thank you for that. I'm going to surprise you with another question. Um, I usually have a surprise question that comes up. I'm currently reading this book called William Shakespeare's Star Wars. And this book uh, is absolutely amazing. I've been reading it. There's actually a book that's written in Shakespeareese for every single Star Wars movie. And for those of us that know, I'm a big Star Wars fan, love Star Wars, but reading this has cracked me up. It's changed my perception of what I originally thought might have been the quote. So that's the book I'm reading. Uh, Wyatt, what book are you reading right now? Yeah, so I'm actually reading a book by Malcolm Gladwell. He's one of my favorite authors. Um, it's a reread for me. Uh, it's called Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking. Mm -hmm. um, I'm doing my capstone project um, right now. I'm in the last nine credits of my master's degree this summer. And I'm looking at decision making. And what is the decision making process? How do you make decisions? What's kind of the psychology behind decision making? And so uh, this is a book that I'm using in my research as I work on that project, that paper this summer. Oh, decision-making. That's such a big thing. I've read a few of his books. Tipping Point was one of my favorites. I feel like, I feel like we're on that kind of precipice in the United States right now. We're at a tipping point. Um, anyways, I hope it turns out to be pretty good. Thank you so much, Wyatt. This has been a great conversation. And to kind of wrap things up, communication, mentorship, generations, there's a lot to be said in this conversation. Um, but what's most important is that, like Wyatt said, we go out there and we try to achieve better relationships and understand what people are saying. And don't try to argue with them. You watch the news nowadays, you probably can see counter arguments for everybody else's other arguments. 
and that's that's not healthy. So either turn the news off, develop relationships some way or another, um, but also understand that if people have an opinion, um, you might it might be worth listening to. So Wyatt, thanks for your time. Thanks for uh, being with us today. I hope you have a great weekend. Um, we will air this podcast. Actually, I'm going to do it tomorrow. I'm going to publish it tomorrow. Fantastic. Thanks, Tim. So, this yeah, was awesome. Bet. Wyatt, it's really great to have you. Uh, we'd love to have you again, very specifically about generations, if you're willing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to come back. This was awesome. Very cool. All right, everybody. We'll see you down the road. Take care. Thanks for that great interview, Wyatt Bradbury. Um, that was incredible. By the way, thank you for your service to the Navy. I appreciate it. In our next podcast, we're going to have a conversation with Courtney Harmon. Um, Courtney, incredible friend. Um, and let's just say this. It'll be an interview about previous lives, previous jobs, diversity, inclusion. It'll be a great podcast. So stay tuned. We'll see you down the road. Thanks for joining us. This podcast was brought to you by you, our listeners. Thank you for attending and spending some of your time with us.